church this evening, isn't it? I tell you, your pastor and staff have been such gracious hosts to me. I've enjoyed every moment of fellowship with them. And you all have been so attentive and responsive to the preaching yesterday, and I trust you will be tonight. And that is a credit to your love for the Lord and a credit to your pastor's leadership. You ought to thank God that you're a part of a church that's loving, not unloving. That you're a part of a church that's growing, not declining. That you're a part of a church that's living, not dying. God is on the move at Gateway Baptist Church, and I can promise you the best is yet to come. We're certainly missing your pastor and praying for him and his family tonight and trust that God will raise them up very soon. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel chapter 31. heard a story one time about a very lonely frog who went to see a fortune teller to discover if he would ever be lucky in love. So he went in to see the fortune teller and he asked, will I get to meet my special someone? The fortune teller looked into her crystal ball and she said, I've got good news for you soon and very soon. You're going to meet someone who wants to know everything there is to know about you. And the frog got its hopes up. And of course, the question next was, when will I meet this special someone? And she looked into her crystal ball and she gave him the answer. Next semester in biology class. (laughs) Some of you will get that a little later. Have you ever gotten your hopes up about something only to discover when you got it, it wasn't nearly as good as you thought it would be? The nation of Israel must have felt that way about King Saul. Saul had potential oozing out of his ears. He was the valedictorian, class president, and captain of the football team, all wrapped up in one attractive package. He was handpicked to be the first king of Israel. But Saul's life teaches us a valuable lesson. Potential is no guarantee of success. He wrote his own autobiography in 1 Samuel 26 when he said, I have played the fool. And other than Judas Iscariot, Saul goes down as the greatest failure and all of the Bible. And his life is going to teach us tonight how to be a failure. I want you to look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 31, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto the armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword, And died with him. The title of the message this evening is How to Be a Failure. And I'm preaching this message because I don't want to be a failure. And I don't want anyone here to be a failure. And more importantly, God doesn't want anyone here to be a failure. I want you to notice just a few things about Saul's failure by way of introduction. First of all, he failed himself. Think about this the last deed of the first king of Israel was suicide. God had so much more for Saul than that. Not only did he fail himself, but the Bible tells us that he failed his family. Look at verse 6. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men that same day together. We read that Saul's sons were on the battlefield with him that day, and at least three of them died. Now fathers are supposed to bless and protect their children, right? But Saul had led his children to a battlefield where they would pay for his mistakes. I just remind you tonight that our sins always affect those who follow us. 
Many of you here tonight have children and grandchildren. You have little eyes looking up to you and little feet who are following you. Some of you aren't yet to that time in life, but you will be one day. And today you can make choices that bless them. You can also make some choices that fail them. I don't know about you, but I don't want to fail my family like Saul did. Saul failed himself. He failed his family. I noticed this. He failed his nation. Look at verse 7. And when the men of Israel saw, or when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Now, folks, this goes down as one of the greatest military defeats in Israel's history. If you'll remember throughout the book of Joshua, all that the children of Israel did to win that promised land. But Saul's defeat was so total that the men of Israel actually fled from the cities and took up hiding in the caves. The Philistines were so victorious. Saul had failed his nation. Now, I think we could spend a lot of time tonight talking about the Saul's that have failed our nation, the politicians and the preachers. But suffice it to say that our nation needs you to be a David, not a Saul. We need you to be a winner for God and not a loser. Saul failed his nation. I noticed this, Saul failed the world. You say, that's got to be hyperbole. It's not. Look at verse 8. And it came to pass on the morrow, when the Philistines came to strip the land, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, and stripped off his armor, and sent into the lands of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now, the point here, and it's lying underneath the surface, is that this incident made international news. If you remember, Israel was in a strategic place geographically. It's located on a land bridge between three continents. And the reason that God placed them there in His providence was the idea that as the world traveled through Israel, they would hear about the great God of Israel. Israel was always meant to reach the world right from where they were. And we're told in this passage that after Saul had died, they took his head off his shoulders, and then they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. That's an important Bible place. Beth Shan was the crossroads of two main roads in the ancient world, the King's Highway and the Water Highway. It would have been like fastening his body to a billboard on I-40 in Nashville. Everybody in that part of the world would have seen it. The news would have spread in every direction. King Saul, God's champion, was dead. And the Philistines, God's enemies, were victorious. God wants global glory, but Saul brought him global shame. Saul failed the world. I notice this, Saul failed God. Because we read about them taking the head of King Saul and passing it around, and then putting it in the temples of the pagan gods. We read that the houses of the pagan gods were filled with joy and jubilation at the failure of the great King Saul. His armor went to the house of Ashtaroth, the false god. His head was taken to the house of the pagan god Dagon. What the writer of Solomon is trying to help us understand is that this was not just a military battle, it was a spiritual battle. And Saul lost it. And a lot of people in his generation doubted and disbelieved God because of his personal failure. Can I just remind you tonight that your life exists for the glory of God? In the word of one preacher, that means your life exists to make God look good. That's why you're here. But you have an enemy tonight who is after you, not just because he hates you, but because he hates your God. 
And if he can make a failure after a Christian mother or a Christian father, if he can make a failure out of a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a servant in this church, if he can make a failure out of a rank and file member of Gateway Baptist Church, there are a lot of watching people who would see it and doubt and disbelieve God as a result. God's name is on the line with the way we live our lives and Saul failed the name of God. I think we could all say that he failed on every level possible. Now, here's the point. If a man with that much potential could fail like that, then so too could you, and so too could I. The Bible says, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Now, here's what I want you to know about spiritual failure tonight. Spiritual failure is not an event. It's a process. We sow, we wait, we reap. The seeds of Saul's spiritual failure were not sown in 1 Samuel chapter 31. They were actually sown in 1 Samuel 15. So I want you to turn back with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This was the day that Saul decided he was going to be a failure. And we're going to learn from his life some things we should not do this evening. Look at me at 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his, Israel, over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he was come up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. Now look this way, ladies and gentlemen. Was God clear with what He wanted Saul and His people to do? He was crystal clear. We read here about a group of people known as the Amalekites, and God had a grudge against the Amalekites. While the children of Israel were passing through the wilderness many hundreds of years before, they came to a place called Rephidim. And that's the place that Moses struck the rock and water came flowing out. Well, the Bible tells us that uh, the people were parched and they were thirsty and they were very weak. And after Moses hit the rock, the Amalekites snuck up behind the people and they killed those that were weak and those that were thirsty. God never forgot that. And He wanted in this passage to use Saul and the people of Israel to cut like a scalpel the people of the Amalekites out of the land. It was like a cancer that God wanted to remove. So this was the commission that God gave Saul and the people of Israel. I want you to utterly destroy the people of the Amalekites. I want you to skip down and look with me at verse 7. Saul gets an army together. They go to war. We pick it up in verse 7. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Now in verse 3, God told Saul to slay all that they had. But in verse 8, we find that he kept at least one of those people alive. Here's point number one. If you want to be a failure, be selective in your obedience to God. Be selective in your obedience to God. God made His will very clear to Saul, but Saul wanted to pick and choose which parts of God's will he wanted to obey. You remember what Jesus said? He said, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which he heareth not mine, but the Father which sent me. He asked a convicting question one time. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? 
I want to ask you tonight, is your life marked by a total, complete surrender to the will of God or by a selective obedience to the parts of God's will that you would like to obey? If you want to be a failure, be selective in your obedience to God. I notice this, if you want to be a failure, hold on to the best and nicest parts of what God hates and has asked you to destroy. Look at verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy him. So the Bible says here that Saul and the people of Israel decided that they would hold back some of the best and most costly and expensive things that they found in Amalek. We read that he spared the kings and the best things. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about this? What good could have possibly come to the life of Saul by allowing a pagan king into his house? None at all. And I have no doubt that if Agag, the king of the Amalekites, had had the option, he would have thrust his sword through Saul in a moment's notice, right? But yet Saul decided to spare him. Can I tell you that Agag here is a picture of sin and we need to treat sin like it would treat us? We need to be ruthless against the sin in our life because it will be ruthless against us. Christian, be full of grace and mercy towards the sin of other people, but be ruthless against the sin that wars against your soul. And if you want to be a failure, hang on to the costly things, the valuable things, the pretty things that God hates and has asked you to destroy. Look at the end of verse 9. They saved the best things. Then it says, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. If you want to be a failure, give God the leftovers, the worthless, and what you don't want anyway. It says He gave them those things that were vile and refuse. That's what they destroyed. How many of you believe tonight that our God deserves what's best, not what's left? The way to do nothing in your life is to give God the leftovers. I remember hearing Dr. Bobby Robertson say many times when I was in Bible college, you can't build anything great for God on spare time and pocket change. And folks, that's true. You can't do anything great for God with the leftovers. I'm convinced God deserves the best. So give Him the first of your day in Bible reading and prayer. Give Him the first of your income and your tithes and offerings. Give Him the first of your week by worshiping Him in the house of the Lord. And young people, let me talk to you for a second. Give God your college years. Give God your high school years. Give God your young adult years. Don't wait until you get old and worn out before you start living for the Lord. I'm thankful for all of those who get saved later in life and they give the rest of their life to God. But why don't you give God your strength? And why don't you give God your youth? And why don't you give God what's best? You know, God gave you His best when He sent His only Son into this world and He deserves what's best, not what's left. And Saul gave God the leftovers. If you want to be a failure, give God the leftovers. As the story goes on, Samuel the prophet gets word of what's happened in the war against the Amalekites. And God says, I have rejected Saul from being king of Israel. And Samuel, I want you to go and confront him. Let's pick up the reading in verse 11. God is speaking and says, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose up to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel the prophet went looking for Saul to have a confrontation. 
He was looking where Saul should have been, but instead they said Saul has gone down to Carmel and he has set him up a place. Now what does that mean? It's not so obvious in the translation we have before us, but in the original it's very obvious. What happened that day is that Saul set up a shrine. He took some of the spoils that he had gathered from the victory and he amassed them together so that when people passed by, they would know that it was King Saul, the mighty king of Israel, who had won a victory against the Amalekites. And if you want to be a failure, do what Saul did. He stole God's glory. He built a monument instead of an altar. All throughout the Old Testament, when something great would happen, a man of God would build an altar. And it was his way of saying, I didn't do it, but I have a great God who did it. I shouldn't get the credit, but God should get it. Noah built an altar, and Abraham built an altar, and Joshua built an altar, but Saul, he built a monument. He wanted to make sure all the people knew that he should get the credit, that he won the victory. Can I tell you this point is why some people drive what they drive? It's why they live live, live where they live. Everything's about status and showing off. They're in debt up to their eyeballs because every piece of clothing and every piece of footwear has to be designer. They can't ever afford to give to a building program or go on a short-term mission trip because they have invested everything in their lives in monuments. They have nothing left for altars. I want to ask you tonight, what's the purpose of your life? To build a monument or an altar? Are you going around trying to prove how awesome you are or are you trying to show people how great your God is? And if you want to be a failure, be a person who steals God's glory and who uses His resources to build monuments for yourself. I notice this, if you want to be a failure, lie to yourself and others about your real spiritual condition. We already read verse 12. Samuel has come down. Look at verse 13. Let's see their meeting. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And I have something really deep written in the margin of my Bible. Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) Saul had not performed the commandment of the Lord. Not even close. When Samuel came to confront him, Saul lied to him about what had really happened on the battlefield. Can I just say, folks, we're real good at this. Lying to ourselves and others about our real spiritual condition. There's some man sitting here tonight. You say, I don't have a pornography problem. It's just something I do every once in a while. Somebody else is saying, I'm not an alcoholic. I only get drunk on the weekends. Someone else says, I wouldn't be such an angry person if all the people around me weren't so stupid. We like to lie to people and we like to lie to ourselves about our real spiritual condition. Can I tell you something? Life is not going to go well for you unless you get honest. All of us are works in progress, but we will never make progress if we will not be honest about where we are and in the areas we need to grow. And by the way, that's why God sends us a Samuel. Someone to help us see us for who we really are. Did Samuel confront Saul that day because he hated him? No, no, no. We read about it in verse 11. He stayed up all night crying about the message that he would have to give Saul. Uh, Samuel did not confront Saul about his sin because he hated him. He confronted him because he loved him. And this conversation that Samuel and Saul are going to have, it should have been a wake-up call. Ladies and gentlemen, when someone loves me enough to point out a flaw in my life, I don't want to lie to that person about my real spiritual condition. If a preacher is preaching the truth and I fall under conviction, that's God trying to wake me up. And if the shoe fits, I ought to put it on. If a pastor or a parent 
or a spouse loves you enough to say something uncomfortable to you, thank God that you have a friend who cares enough to tell you the truth and be honest with them. If God loves you enough to send you a Samuel, don't you dare lie to them. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Jesus said of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. And ladies and gentlemen, I am not an exception and you are not an exception. All of those things live in you. Know yourself well enough. Know the depravity of your own sinful heart. Not to be surprised when someone tells you that you've sinned. And have humility to be honest with them. If our first response is to get defensive or make excuses, we are walking in the way of Saul. Listen to what Proverbs says. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. And a big part of whether we're going to succeed or fail in the Christian life has everything to do with how we respond to the Samuels God loves loves us enough to send us. So if you want to be a failure, lie about your spiritual condition. Look at Saul's response in verse 15 after Samuel has confronted him. Samuel says, if you've performed the commandments of the Lord, why do I hear all of these sheep bleeding? Verse 15. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. See what's happening here? Saul says, this is the people's fault. Now, I have no doubt that this is exactly how it played out. That perhaps Saul set out to do what God commanded him to do, but the people stood up and said, hey, there's a lot of sheep and oxen here we could use for the worship service of God. So why don't we take these things and we can use them and give them as a gift back to God. The problem is that that was directly disobedient to what God had asked them to do. I have no doubt there was some peer pressure Saul has had a responsibility, however, to stand regardless of the pressure. And if you want to be a failure like Saul, refuse to stand for your convictions when others oppose you. Refuse to stand for your convictions when others oppose you. Ladies and gentlemen, when God's word clearly speaks about a matter, we have a responsibility to stand for it. In 1998, 16-year-old Rachel Scott wrote in her diary, I am not going to apologize for speaking in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to hide the light of God that He's put in me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. On April the 20th, 1999, 16-year-old Cassie Barnall handed her friend Amanda Meyer a note that said, Honestly, I want to live my life completely and totally for God. It's hard and scary, but I want to do it. That very day, two boys walked up to Rachel Scott at Columbine High School. They shot her three times without saying a word. Seeing she was still alive, one of the boys picked her up by the back of her hair and asked her if she still believed in God. She answered yes. The boy said, then go and be with him, and and he sent her into eternity. Rachel Scott was hiding in a classroom, and later in the day, two boys came into the class. She was under her desk. One of the boys asked her a simple question. Do you believe in God? She said one word, yes. And they shot and killed her. 
Talk about two young ladies who took their stand for Christ. Rachel Scott's funeral was attended by more than 2,000 people and was televised throughout the nation. At that time, it was the most watched event ever on CNN, surpassing even the funeral of Diana, the Princess of Wales. All the world stopped to watch the funeral of a girl who took her stand for God. And when you know what's right, stand for it. Even if no one else does. Even if you have to stand alone. Many times in my life I've heard Dr. Raymond Barber say, Christian, you were made to rule this world, not be ruled by it. So when you know God's Word on a matter, stand for it, no matter who stands against you. Unfortunately, Saul didn't do that, and he goes down as a failure. I notice this and also in verse 15. If you want to be a failure, blame others for your personal choices. What was happening in verse 15? Saul was shifting the blame, wasn't he? It's the people's fault, Samuel. Take it up with them. Can I tell you something, folks? Blaming other people for your sin is like blaming the workers at Krispy Kreme for your weight problem. <laughs> folks, they don't have a magnet in the drive-thru that automatically sucks your car in when you drive by, okay? You could have a bowl of oatmeal or a piece of fruit every once in a while, okay? And listen, folks. When we sin... It's not our parents' fault. It's not our boyfriend's fault. It's not our girlfriend's fault. It's not our church's fault. It's not our pastor's fault. When we sin, it's our fault. And if you want God to remove the guilt from your sin, you have to learn to accept the blame. Losers go through life blaming others for their failures. Successes and leaders take responsibility for their choices. And Saul failed to do that. If you want to be a failure, I notice this. Live off the spirituality of others and never experience God personally. Notice what Saul said at the end of verse 15. We were going to make sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. And you might mark that little word thy in verse 15. See what was happening here? Samuel was, or Saul, excuse me, was living off the spirituality of Samuel. Uh, To Saul, he was not the Lord my God. He was the Lord thy God. And I wonder if you have noticed in yourself a tendency to do the same. You know, some Christians are only as good as their crowd. Have you noticed that? When they're at church on Sunday and around people who love God, they have a certain vocabulary. How are you today, brother? I'm blessed. Amen. Praise the Lord. When they get around the water cooler at work, it's a completely different story. When they slide into the DMs of someone on social media, their vocabulary is awful different. Some Christians are only as good as their crowd and they have a second-hand faith. And that's exactly what was happening in the life of Saul. You know what's happening at this exact time in history? While Saul is leeching off the spirituality of Samuel, there was a little shepherd boy in a field who was all alone. And he loved the Lord and he would pour out his heart to God in song. And he would write songs like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my light and my salvation. You see, to Saul, he was the Lord thy God. But to David, he was the Lord my God. And a lot of us tonight have a thy problem. Is he thy God or is he my God? Ladies and gentlemen, that is the difference in a spiritual success or a failure. 
And if you want to be a failure in life, live off the spirituality of the good kids in your youth department. Live off the spirituality of your pastor or the staff at church and never experience God personally. Oh, may the Lord help us. If you want to be a failure, I notice this in verse 17. Be big in your own eyes. Look there. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, was thou not made head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. See what Samuel's saying, Saul? you got a pride problem. When God found you, you were nothing. But you've come to be convinced that you are something. And if you want to be a failure, folks, exaggerate your own importance. Think that you're an exception to God's rule. That you're important to, too important to experience the consequences of your sin. That you're the one person that can sow but not reap. I think as the king of Israel, Saul thought that he was irreplaceable, that he was too big to fail, and God is about to show him how replaceable he was, and by the way, how replaceable we all are. He was big in his own eyes. I notice lastly tonight, if you want to be a failure, offer offer partial repentance to God. Look at verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now note Saul's response. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It sounds good to this point, but look at verse 25. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, this starts out pretty good. It starts out with Saul saying, I have sinned against the Lord. I recognize that I have transgressed. But in verse 25, Saul proves to us that his repentance was insincere. You say, Pastor Gillette, how do you know that? Two ways. Number one, he seemed to care more about what Samuel thought about his sin than what God thought about it. Because he said in verse 25, turn aside with me and you pardon my sin. In other words, uh, Samuel, it's real important that the people see that we're together here. It's real important that the people don't think that there's been a division between us two. So don't you walk away with me, turn aside with me, so we can keep up appearances in the sight of the people. Now that sounds, uh, that sounds a lot more like a man who is concerned about his reputation than he's concerned about his sin. Can I remind you of something tonight? This is absolutely essential if we're ever going to have revival. There is a real difference between repentance and remorse. Now, repentance always starts with remorse, but it doesn't end there. Remorse is sorrow over what my sin did to me. Repentance is sorrow over what my sin did to God. And in this passage, Saul shows a lot of remorse, but no real repentance. The second way I can tell you his repentance was insincere is that Saul's life never changed. And he continues to make a lot of these same mistakes and to manifest these very similar failures. And ladies and gentlemen, repentance is a lot more than getting touched in a service and coming down to an altar and crying a few crocodile tears, walking out the back and living the exact same way that you lived before you came to church. Genuine repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. 
And the fruit of repentance is what happens after you feel the remorse. And Saul's life never changed in any significant way. Saul has shown us tonight how to be a failure in ten easy steps. Be selective in your obedience to God. Hold on to the best parts of what God hates. Steal God's glory. Give Him the leftovers. Lie to people about your real spiritual condition. Refuse to stand. Live off the spirituality of others. Get big in your own eyes. And offer partial, halfless, uh, heartless, or excuse me, halfway heartless repentance, if I could get it out. Now here's the good news. All in favor of some good news. Here's the good news tonight. Every failure can be forgiven. (laughs) The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess simply means to say the same thing. It means to agree with God. If we walk out of here tonight and you say, it's a beautiful evening in Tennessee, and I agree with you and I say, yes, it's it's a beautiful evening in Tennessee, we will have agreed together. And if tonight, as I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit has gripped your heart about one or many of these characteristics that are present with your life, and you will agree with God, and you will say, I don't want this sin, I don't want to be a failure, I want to be success, that is agreeing with God. And the Bible says the moment you agree with God, He will forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If I know anything about our God, is that He is full of grace and mercy. And he'd be willing to forgive any failure here who would offer him a genuine repentance. He's a God of grace. And the best thing about grace is that no one is so good they don't need it. And no one is so bad that they can't have it. Every failure can be forgiven. And in the Christian life, failure is never final. Now as we close this story tonight, I think the story of Saul leaves us longing for a true and better king. Can I remind you that everywhere Saul failed, King Jesus succeeded? Think about it. Saul was big in his own eyes. But the Lord Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation and took upon Himself the form of a servant. Saul rebelled against God. But Jesus did always those things that pleased the Father. He lived a perfectly obedient life. Running from his failures, Saul took his life But on the cross, Jesus gave His life so failures like you and me could be forgiven. Saul cursed his family and brought God global shame. Jesus blesses all those He brings into His family, bringing God global praise. Everything that Saul did wrong, Jesus did right. And here's the good news. If you know Christ, you are not a failure because history's greatest success lives in you. I wonder tonight, how many of you would be honest enough to admit that at least one of these characteristics is present in your life? Today, you have the same choice before you that Saul had before him that day. You can repent and get clean and get right with God, and God will bless you and forgive you and use you in ways that you could never imagine, or you can keep walking in the way of Saul, and failure is at the end of that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in the Bible there are a lot of great examples who show us what we should do, but every once in a while we run across an example that shows us what we should not do. And Lord, as I've preached this passage, I've been convicted tonight. You've pointed out some things to me that should not be there. And it's time for me to get right with You. My guess is tonight that there are some folks here 
who would say at least one of these characteristics is present in their life. And oh God, help us not to repeat the mistake of Saul. Help us tonight to confess that scene and get thoroughly right with you and help us to leave here not a loser but a winner. With every head bowed and every eye closed, it's time to get honest with God. How many of you would say, I'm a Christian, but at least one of these characteristics that was present in the life of Saul is present in my life tonight and I don't want it. If that's you, would you lift your hand with mine? Folks, the, uh, hands are raised just about all over the room. Let me tell you something. The church will not have revival until God's people get thoroughly right with God. And tonight, this is your opportunity to come, Christian. Find a place at this altar. Agree with God and leave here forgiven and cleansed. And if you raised your hand here in just a moment, we're going to stand to our feet. And I'm going to ask all of God's people who raised their hand to lead the way to the altar. Don't walk in the way of Saul today. Get right with God. I wonder how many of you would say, Pastor Gillett, to be honest, I'm not a Christian. And this evening I've preached primarily to God's people. Revival starts with the church. But you're here tonight and you'd say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian. You need to know tonight that God loves you. You need to know tonight that you're a sinner separated from God. You need to know that Jesus died for your sins on the cross of Calvary. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And that the Bible way of salvation is simply changing your mind about your sin and trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Listen very carefully to Romans 10 and 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And I wonder if there's anyone here honest enough to say, Pastor Gillette, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can't save myself, but I have never put my faith and trust in Jesus I don't want my sin. I do want Jesus. I don't want hell. I do want heaven. Pastor Gillett, would you please pray for me? With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would you just lift up your hand with mine? Pastor, I'm not sure my sins have ever been forgiven. Would you please pray for me? If that's you, would you slip up your hand with mine? I'm not sure I'm saved. I'd like to know how I can be. Pastor, would you please pray for me? Father, work in this time of invitation. May your people respond to how you've spoken to them this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. We're standing all around the room. A whole army of hands went up a moment ago. Christian, leave your seat. Find a place at this altar. Get clean. Get right with God tonight. Don't be too proud to admit you failed. We've all failed. Don't be too proud to admit you have a problem. We all have problems. Thank God we know a problem solver. And that happens as we confess our sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians are coming. They're praying. Why don't you leave your seat tonight and come and join them?
Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter number 7, verse number 14, we know it. If my people, which are called by my name,